Welcome to New Life Baptist Preaching, where we grow in relationships, we grow in discipleship, and grow in Jesus Christ. This series will be looking at the Shema passage that was repeated daily for the Jews in Deuteronomy 6, 4-10. We hope that you subscribe so that you can grow in your worship and obedience of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 6, the Shema is traditionally accepted as Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 10. Uh, and I hope that you've had the opportunity to maybe be meditating on that, uh, to be thinking on the Shema passage, maybe reading it uh, each day or, or saying it, reciting it from memory if you're able. Um, I think it would be greatly helped by that. And this morning, <clears throat> we're actually talking about meditating on God's Word. Last week, we spent most of our time defining love. We saw the way in which the law of God was being given the second time to the people of God before being brought into the land that was promised by God. And all this showcases the greatest picture of the truest love of God for His people. We should have a love of God that entails love for His commandments. We spoke about the implication of obeying and teaching His, his commands. But now we're going to talk about meditating on this law. Now, meditation is something that often gets a bad rap because of uh, all of the sort of pagan practices that have been adopted in our nation. I mean, there's a growing uh, practice of Falun Gong, if I said that right. It's a Chinese practice of meditation that there are entire parks dedicated to this in New York at this point. It's, you know, which, you know, the Chinese have, uh, I think can, we could say, call that an ancestry worship, uh, more or less. But meditation, peaceful practices, not anything harmful in a physical sense at all. And, and, and some, I think there's, some helps to this quiet, and I think I think we're going to see this today. Uh, even yoga. I mean, I've seen churches that have yoga classes. Uh, again, nothing wrong with the stretching, the meditation, quiet and still. We should talk about this, but like Rachel says, they the pagans have taken something that's not theirs to take. They've laid claims to uh, something, and uh, and it's caused us again to just have a poor understanding within the church of practices like meditation. Um, and so hopefully, as we talk about all of this, uh, about not emptying our minds, but filling our minds with the Word of God, and by the end, I hope that we have some, even some helpful practices in how we can learn as a church to meditate on God's Word. So uh, I invite you to stand. I'm going to do like I've done the past couple Sundays and read through the whole Shema there, just verses 4 through 10. And we'll be focusing on verse 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day 
shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them on the post of thy house and on thy gates. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not. Father, we come to you this morning and we want to spend time in your word. We want to learn how central your word is to our physical well-being, our emotional and spiritual well-being. And uh, God, that you would help us to love your word. Lord, that your word would be in our hearts as we are told it is to be in your word, even this very passage. God, we pray that we would meditate on your law day and night. Lord, that we would be a people of your word. Lord, that we would be driven and shaped by your word. And Lord, that we would in Christ see your word fulfilled. So God, we ask that you guide our study this morning. That your word has its place in the center of our hearts and of our service this morning. And that your word incarnate in Christ Jesus is glorified in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. These words, God's word, are to be in our hearts. The commandments, the statutes of the Lord that Joshua has been giving them, uh, reiterating all that was given through Moses before entering into the land, all of it. You should meditate on these things. These words should be on your heart. Now we have even the fuller command in, in, in the whole new covenant that's given to us the fulfillment of all of this text and it should be on our heart. So we touched on some of this last week briefly as is going to become the habit. Our study should overlap giving us a really rich understanding for every facet of this text, I hope. By the end of this. And so we must realize the nature of this law that we are to have in our heart, the relationship that we have to the law, and its continued ongoing influence in our lives. Now, there's times I just want to warn the way that I'm speaking of the law of God, I'm at times equating that with the word of God. And I just want to caution us whenever we say this, please don't understand that I'm talking about just merely the Ten Commandments. But whenever I say the Word of God and the way that I want you to begin to understand the Word of God is the Word of God that brought all things into creation from Genesis 1 and John 1. It's the Word of God that was given on Mount Sinai that's being repeated here through Joshua. It's the word of God that was spoken, thus saith the Lord through the prophets. It's the word of God that was made incarnate in Jesus Christ. 
It's the Word of God that is the Gospel that we preach every Sunday. When I say the Word of God, it involves the law of God, which I think is most fully fulfilled in Christ. And there's a lot more that we could, I could build that argument off of, but I want you to have all of Scripture in mind whenever I say that. But first, even in this first giving of this law, and I, I hope you have your Bibles ready because I want to use Scripture for us to understand all of this. When we look at the nature of this law of God, even in the commandment, even under the old covenant, we should see the nature of this law is love. The nature of this law comes somewhere, even historically, in this, in at least one point of this entire pattern of redemption that God has planned for His people. And so for that, I'd like to look to Deuteronomy 32, verse 45 through 47. Moses made an end of speaking. Remember, this is Deuteronomy. Joshua's repeating what happened through Moses. And he tells his story. Moses made an end of speaking all these words to Israel, and he said unto them, Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe to do. And all the words of this law, for it is not a vain thing to you, because it is your life. And through this thing ye shall prolong your days in the land, whither ye go over to the Jordan, possess it. We set our hearts on all of this law. It's not vain, but it's our life. This law is our life. Psalm 37. And if you're not turning there, please make note of these in the outline on the back of the bulletin. Psalm 37, 30-31, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The law is for our good and it always has been for our good. Another scripture will explain this for us. Galatians, this is New Testament, under the New Covenant. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 19. Wherefore then serveth the law? Why, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is... Not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law. Shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster 
For we are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now there's a lot there. Uh, I probably wouldn't preach all of that text in one sermon. But we need this full passage to see that the law is not only our schoolmaster or our guardian, but to see the relationship between the law and Christ. Just before this passage, Paul calls Jesus the offspring singular that was prophesied to all these promise come, not the offsprings plural. So in other words, what Paul is trying to argue is that the promise of God, all of this redemption of God was not promised to all of you or all of Israel. It was promised to Christ. And then in Christ is where all of us receive these promises. We must be in Christ. And I think they draw this up in a neat little bow whenever he says, if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed. The promise was given to all of Abraham's offspring. Singular is what Paul argues, which is Christ. So we receive that fulfillment of all of this law that's written in our hearts or that's to be in our hearts that's given to us in the Shema passage. Christ is that culmination. We remember Hebrews 1, the law, or in former times, God spoke to us through the prophets and through all of His law. Now, He speaks to us through Christ, His Son. Christ is the fullest representation of this law and revelation of God. So then the law, as we think of this, and we have this law in our hearts, it's our caretaker. Schoolmaster, guardian, whatever that should translate for us, it is our caretaker over God's people for a time. It watches over us. It is a good thing. And so we turn to our relationship, to this law of God. If we understand the purpose, this nature of the law, what it is that it does, now let's look at the way that we relate to the law. I want to look to some more scripture. Make note of Isaiah 51, verse 7 and 8. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revilings. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and worms shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Hearken to God's law for comfort. If they could say it in their day, friends, I think we can say it in our day, many are fearful of the wickedness of this generation. This passage speaks to this. Don't fear their revilings. 
Don't, don't grow weary in all of these things. If you know righteousness, you who have God's law in your hearts, hearken to this law. Hearken to God. And so we love his law. Paul says as much, recognizing even his own sinfulness. Again, in the New Testament, I want to look to Romans 7, 22 through 25. I'm trying to draw together a full biblical theology here. Paul writes, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity into the law of sin which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my, the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. He loves the law of God. He, he's set free from the law of sin, but it's because he comes under a new master and he loves the law of God. He's been, been made able to obey this new law in Christ who fulfills it. So Romans, really the whole book does well in explaining this relationship between the law and the gospel. We recognize our sin because of the law. But this doesn't mean that we come to despise the law. When Paul says that the law brings sin, it's because we're made aware of God's righteous standard. And so we come in Christ, we come to love the law because of its righteous purpose, finally fulfilled in Christ. And so it's true that Christ did bring a change because apart from Christ, we would have been left in our sin with no way to relish in this goodness, this good standard of God. It's why it seems so oppressive to us. But in some sense, we have now, as we're redeemed in Christ, Christ is the fullest representation of the law. It was in Christ our redemption comes in that Christ was obedient to the law. And that Christ imputes that righteousness to the law to us. This is how we become righteous. The way we're able to be justified by God. And even sanctified to it. And now in an interesting sense, we become guardians of the law. You see, there's a, an interesting sort of a role reversal, if you will, where for a time the law was our guardian. We were left in sin, unable to please God. And, and we had the law to guard us, to show us our sin, and to even taper us away from these, this grotesque lifestyles of sin. Already in the Old Testament, we see repentance and, and turning away and now something changes. Now as we are set free in Christ, Christ obeys the law and brings us into Christ. That law is now in our hearts and we become guardians of this law. We love the law and we live the law. 
sin no longer oppresses us by God's law, but we freely embrace the goodness of God's law, seeing it in Christ. And so this means that law still has an influence for us today. The law has not been abolished, but fulfilled. So we look at this continued influence and we've got to see this promise that is fulfilled in Christ. Now, much of this we've already heard, but this passage, and if you haven't made note of anyone, please write down Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. All of this is the fulfillment. Right here is the relationship. If you haven't seen the relationship between the law of gospel, please remember Jeremiah 31. It reads, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man and his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the great transition. The law that was over us is no longer over us. It's written in our hearts. There is a way in which our passage, thinking of the way that we're going to dwell all the time on the law of God, could serve as prophecy in the same way that Jeremiah's prophesying about the law of God now coming into the hearts of men. Where you're no longer going to have a priest, you're no longer going to have a mediator like Moses who... who tells you about this law of God, you're going to have Christ Himself who is your mediator who comes to live in you and write His law in your heart. And so this is prophecy, but it's certainly it's something that establishes us on the law of God that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The law is written in our hearts, and if it is not, dear friend, you're not a Christian. This is, this promise in Jeremiah is what was fulfilled in Christ. He writes his law on your hearts. Christ has been raised that we can live in newness of life. Paul said, who will redeem me from this body of death? He was under the law. And he says, I praise God for Christ Jesus. Do you all see that connection? And so we've already labored the point of Christ's work in relation to the law. As He lives in us, the law continues to shape us continually into His image. So I think of Romans 12, 1 and 2. It was a passage I think we referenced um, in Sunday school this morning. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
the highest standard of God which no man could achieve is achieved in Christ Jesus and is attainable in Christ Jesus. And we now can discern what is this good, acceptable, perfect will of God that was first revealed in his law. It comes to us. This will of God comes to us in the law, the Psalms, the prophets, but most perfectly in Christ. We're transformed into his image by his word. We're united in Christ by his word. It's true we're not justified on our merit, but we should not act as if Christ imputing his righteousness under the law to us will not change our lives. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, you will be made righteous in Christ. We are sanctified in him. And so we increasingly attach ourselves to his word. So what does this look like? We've said a lot about how this, uh, the law has this prevalence in our life and it's written in our hearts. But as we think about that, as we talk about filling our minds with this word of God, it doesn't mean that this is always apart from silence and solitude. I opened up with, the idea of meditating on God's word. And so meditating on God's word, I think, is in part what we've been doing this morning. Just meditating on God's word. And I want to be careful here because I realize that there are too many parents who seek to escape their duties regularly. I've heard it said that we're in an escapist culture. We always want to... Um, get a reprieve we have to to get a reprieve from our work we want to escape our work and we think that leaving our work is how we get our rest instead of finding joy in our work finding a rest amid this where this rest of Christ seems to pervade all that we do every day <clears throat> so I want us to help think through that and I actually want to establish a high view of departing, not escaping that culture, not escaping our duties as parents or as uh, Christians or uh, whatever roles it is that we're playing. We'll talk about vocation later in this series. But it is good. There is a place for us to withdraw for silence and solitude. And so that those quiet times alone can be very useful and fruitful for the Christian. And so we do well, even as we think of this, to allow your husband or your wife those times of solitude or of quiet. And so Donald Whitney gives a few reasons uh, that we might do this from his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And I think these are helpful in thinking through this. Predominantly is just the list is all that I've taken from him. For one, we can do this 
in following Christ's example. Matthew 4.1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Even in his temptation. In Matthew 14, And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. When the evening was come, he was there alone. In Mark 1.35, And in the morning, rising up great, a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. In Luke 4.42, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desert place. And when the people sought him, and they came unto him and stayed him, that he should not depart from them. It was the habit of Christ to withdraw and pray, to endure temptation and any of these things. And so we follow Christ's example. It may be useful for us to withdraw and to silence or solitude for a time to minimize distractions in prayer. Remember Elijah listening for the still small voice of God on the Mount Horeb in 1 Kings 19.8. Or Habakkuk keeping watch through the night to hear an answer from the Lord in Habakkuk 2.1. Or maybe we could think of Paul's time in the wilderness for preparation after his conversion in Galatians 1.17. We might spend time alone to express worship for God. But the Lord in His holy temple let all the earth keep silence before Him. Habakkuk 2.20 Another act of worship. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God for the day of the Lord is at hand. The Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid His guest. Hold thy peace is what Zephaniah 1.7 says. Zechariah 2.13 says, Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for He's raised up out of His holy habitation. Literally, we see silence as an act of worship, not needing words. Sometimes this silence is a way we can express faith in God. Psalm 62, 1 and 2, Truly, my soul waiteth upon God. From Him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. He waits. Just waiting. The act of waiting. Psalm 62 again in 5, 6, He says again, My soul waiteth only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. Isaiah says the same in Isaiah 30, verse 15. For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, in rest shall ye be saved. In quietness, and confidence shall be your strength. And you would not. We take rest. 
part of them entering into the promised land was entering into God's rest from their enemies round about them. We might have quiet to seek salvation of the Lord. The Lord is good unto them that wait for Him, the soul that seeketh Him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. He sitteth alone and keepeth silence because he hath borne it upon him. Lamentations 3, 25-28. Now, see, we've got a picture of waiting. You know, now I'm thinking of Brad Paisley's song, Waiting on a Woman. You know, waiting quietly. Maybe you can use this for your children whenever they're not waiting quietly. Listen now. Let's read Lamentations 3 again. You know, we need to sit alone and keep silence. Right? Quiet's good for us. It's good for our children to learn that. It's good to let your to make sure that your wife gets this time alone from the children. It's good for your children maybe to get that time alone from their brothers and sisters. Teach them the blessing of quiet times. We can have this time to be physically and spiritually restored is what Dr. Whitney says. He said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going and they had no leisure so much as to eat. Mark 6, 31. He tells them, look, draw away. He tells his apostles, draw away. They didn't even have time to eat. Uh, we can do this to regain spiritual perspective. Who can forget Zechariah when given this promise of uh, John the Baptist? He was struck silent until it was fulfilled. Uh, we see that uh, in the Gospels, and behold, in Luke one twenty, and behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. Sometimes we need a period of silence to regain spiritual understanding. Or to seek the will of God. Jesus provides an example again before he chose the apostles that would travel with him in Luke 6, 12 and 13. It came to pass in those days that he, Jesus, went out to a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples and all of them. He chose 12 whom he also named apostles. Jesus took this time of quiet before choosing his apostles, we can withdraw to learn control of the tongue. Sometimes, whenever we have trouble controlling ourselves, it is best to walk away. There's loads of examples that we can use for this time of meditation. But again, remember, it is not... It is not going and emptying your mind of anything. It is dwelling on all that God has done. All that He has spoken in regard to our redemption. 
It is better for the Christian to not empty their mind and then return to their exhausting circumstances. It only does the Christian good to withdraw and be reminded again of the goodness that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. And so we think of that. So whether you get the quiet times or not, find rest in the Scriptures. Meditate on God's Word. Reclaim that uh, discipline, that spiritual discipline to meditate on God's Word. Uh, help to reshape that and to rid ourselves of the pagan practices. And, um, you know, I think of how often I see Christians sharing uh, quotes from Buddha or Gandhi or uh, Zoroaster or some other pagan influence. You know, get away from this and let us dwell on God's Word and all the redemption, the rest that He provides. Father, we come to you and we recognize that we are a people who are easily exhausted. We're exhausted from our labors. Sadly, some feel they are exhausted of your word. And so God, I pray that you grant us repentance as a people. Lord, indeed, Israel would have experienced this. What they felt was exhaustion of their word was, of your word was really sin. And so, God, I pray that you grant us repentance, that we would be a people who learn to love your law. Lord, that it would be true that we would have this law written in our hearts. No longer lording over us as your law, but a law that we cherish and we love to keep. Teach us to love this law, to obey this law, to dwell on this, your word. And so God, I pray that if there are any here who find themselves exhausted, Lord, that you would show them rest. Lord, you promised this much to us. You made us to work six, but to rest the seventh. And there are some here who have not taken rest. God, I pray that you would show them your rest, not just time apart uh, from their duties, from their responsibilities. But Lord, time set apart unto you. Lord, I pray that the times of devotion for the people here, this your people, Lord, that they would be renewed. Lord, that their time of scripture reading of prayer would no longer be a chore to them, but Lord, that you would impart to them rest and wisdom that they would be renewed in their minds. And so God, as your word says, the rest is, the Sabbath is made for men. And yet those in the presence of the Son uh, have no need of the Sabbath. 
God, I pray that we would be so in your presence that we would be renewed daily in your promises. Father, that all of this word is fulfilled, that these souls are strengthened. Father, that as this morning we observe the Lord's Supper, that we're reminded of these things. Lord, that our souls find rest as we meditate upon your law fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God, we ask this in his most precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Life Baptist Preaching. Where we grow in discipleship, grow in relationships, and grow in Jesus Christ. Subscribe so you don't miss a single Sunday.